You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Seth. And this is Molly. We're hosts of Big Picture Science. Doomsday is in the news again. A popular prediction is that you and everything that you know will be obliterated by the end of this year thanks to an ancient calendar running out. Well, that's pseudoscience, and we at Big Picture Science just can't let that stand. But what about other doomsday scenarios? Some are for real, and we wanted to explore those in our show. So what you're about to hear is from a live event held Saturday, October 27th at the Computer History Museum here in Mountain View, California. As part of the Bay Area Science Festival, we recorded Doomsday Live in front of a large, live, and lively audience. We've broken the two-hour show into two parts. What you're about to hear is part two. In part one, we looked at three doomsday threats, that which is supposedly foretold in the Maya calendar, actual cosmic threats, and also alien invasion. If you missed part one, you can find it on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And it was there that we introduced the likelyometer, a highly scientific high-tech device I constructed in my garage to gauge the audience's assessment of various doomsday threats. Before talking to the experts, we got audience reaction via their applause as to how likely any one end-of-the-world scenario seemed to them. And so here is part two of Doomsday Live. Doomsday Scenario 4. A handful of villagers in China experience headaches and a high fever. Then, difficulty breathing. Half of them die in agony. The same symptoms are reported in the U.S., Africa, and Europe. Hospitals are overwhelmed as the dead pile up and a killer pandemic engulfs the planet. The next bug that gets us probably won't come from outer space. More likely, it's already among us. Okay, what are the chances of a devastating global pandemic in our lifetime, likelyometer? Global pandemic. Likely. It's All right, a little well, awkward to ask people to clap for a global pandemic. Yeah, they, there you go. Okay. There's a lot of bug fanciers in the audience. Kirsten Gallardi is a wildlife veterinarian at the University of California, Davis. She's the leader of the Gorilla Doctors Program, which provides care to gorillas in the wild. She also serves as team leader for the USAID Emerging Pandemic Threats Predict Program. It studies high-risk human wildlife contact to detect emerging pathogens that could infect people. Hi, Kirsten. And Ken Caldera. Ken is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. He's joining Kirsten for reasons that will become evident. Hi, Ken. Good to have you. Kirsten, we're going to start with you. We'll start with an article. This was a piece that was in the New York Times just a few weeks ago, just to give you an idea that this is in the news. This is anticipating the next pandemic. It was written by David Quammen, and he refers to it as the next big one. And do scientists think that there could be a next big one? Well, um, I was going to commend the audience for where they got on your likelyometer um, with your question, because really, we know the history repeats itself, and we know that pathogens have caused very, very significant rates of mortality in human populations. Many of you know about Black Death, which is a more common term for a disease caused by a bacteria called plague. And at the time that it hit this world, this planet, uh, in the 1300s, it killed a quarter of the world's population. And then more recently, in 1918, 1920, the Spanish flu caused by avian influenza 
killed 50 million people in a very short period of time. So there's a cause to be concerned. There's no doubt in my mind. And, and just to be clear, that's 50 million, not, not 15. 50. Sorry, yes, five, zero, 50 yeah. million people. Well, what about this issue? 50 million people, that dwarfs the number of people killed in the First World War, which was going on more or less at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, would that be the case today? If, if the exact same Spanish flu were to occur today, would we be able to uh, reduce that number significantly? Well, I think so. Avian influenza viruses are circulating around the planet as we speak. Um, there is one in particular right now that is great cause for concern. Um, you've all heard about avian influenza that came out of Hong Kong and China in 1997. It has not yet gained the ability to be highly transmissible from person to person, which is what occurred with Spanish flu. But it is highly pathogenic for the individuals who catch it from birds. It's a virus that circulates in birds and primarily in poultry and ducks. And for an, an unfortunate several hundred people, that virus has gone from a bird, infected them, and cause their mortality. Now the concern is that a virus gains the ability to become transmissible from a person to a person. Um, and that's why we, we are most worried about viruses. I mean, there are many different kinds of pathogens in the world, but it's when I think about and worry about the next big one, I'm thinking about viruses because they, are, they have a very high ability to mutate and evolve and become adapted to a new host. And so when a virus, and many people say we live in a virus sphere, we've been talking about the universe. I mean, the viruses are everywhere. They're in every system. They're in all kinds of life forms, um, including bacteria have their own viruses. And so, and these are, these are organisms that we have co-evolved with for the most part. So you all have lots of viruses in you and they're not making you sick. Um, viruses with time really strive to become something that um, can live symbiotically with its host. They are required to live in a cell, but for the most part don't cause disease. But it's when they mutate that they have the potential to cause disease, especially in a host species that has not ever lived with that virus before. But, but one thing I was trying to get out here, Kirsten, are we better, I mean, today we have jet travel, people move much more freely than they did in 1918 around the world, so that sounds like the bad news part. I'm just saying, if Spanish flu occurred today, the same Spanish flu, right? What do we have? Do we have antivirals that would have any effect on containing that? What could we do differently? Right. You're absolutely right. I mean, the state of medicine practice now is just absolutely astounding. And, the, and we have tools at our disposal for treating very, very sick people that we did not have it then. So there's no question that I think, and when flu pandemic, I mean, there's always a flu pandemic. There's, there are always flu viruses circulating around the world. We have the ability to care for patients who are very, very sick with, with these viruses. Uh, we also have incredible communication systems. So when a very potentially virulent new avian influenza appears on the scene, as it did in 1997, uh, we have the ability to warn the world about it. Um, and there's been a significant investment made around the world to get countries prepared to deal with an, an outbreak of a new virus. And so I do think that we are much better prepared to deal with something like Spanish flu now than we were in 1918. That said, those abilities are not evenly distributed around the world. Um, and so there are going to be parts of the world that aren't able to deal with an outbreak of an, a brand new virus as, as other places. It sounds like when we talk about candidates, as you've mentioned, flu, flu is a big candidate for being the next, the next big one. But there's a lot of scary literature. Many people have read Richard Preston's The Hot Zone. And in that case, he talks about Ebola. Now, there's an Ebola outbreak going on in the Congo right now. I wonder if you could just describe what is happening and whether Ebola could be a candidate for a worldwide pandemic. Well, Ebola is a, a very lethal virus that we didn't really know about until a couple decades ago. And we don't know what host organism it's reservoired in. So many people suspect it's probably a bat species, but that has not been determined. And what happens is that this virus pops up in parts of the world where there's quite a bit of consumption, eating, hunting and eating of wild animal species. Wildlife are a very important potential source of one of these new viruses that we worry about. And that's simply because a very large portion of infectious diseases affecting humans are what we call zoonotic. They are of animal origin. They come from animals. And in fact, when they've reviewed the 
brand new diseases that we knew nothing about 20 years ago, and they've gone back through and reviewed those. A very significant portion of those come from wildlife. And what's happening with Ebola virus, wherever it's reservoired, wherever it's sort of living and simmering in the forest of the central Africa, it occasionally spills over into a human host because of direct contact with that animal and its blood. And it is a scary virus because it is so quickly lethal, but when you get right down to it, the number of people who have died of Ebola virus is, is quite low compared to other causes of infectious disease. And so, um, but that's not to say that it couldn't at some point mutate and become something that was much more virulent and could be much more easily transmitted between infected people. Okay, but now, Kirsten, the world is undergoing uh, climate change. We're going to hear that from Ken, but I think everybody knows. You're out there, as it were, on the ground, literally, uh, looking at the situation there. Do you see a change in the flora and fauna out there because of climate change? Well, that's a great question. There are major shifts in distribution of species, and I think Ken will probably talk about that. And that's one of the things we worry about with pathogens is that as species move, um, and the vectors for some of these infectious diseases moves like mosquitoes. Um, you know, malaria is showing up in places where it wasn't as prevalent, and that's been attributed to climate change. So we do worry about the changes in communities of species. We worry about how um, climate change will affect where people go and where they work to make their livelihoods, because it really is, you know, the fact that this planet's got seven billion people and they're moving into what used to be fairly pristine areas where these wild species and their, and their viruses were living quite peacefully, but the rates of contact now between people and wildlife is increasing. It's really what is the cause for concern in terms of anticipating and wondering where the next big one might come from. Now, Ken, on the subject of environmental change, and this is why you're here together, there is a role that environmental destruction plays in unleashing these new viruses. And what is it that, I know that your specialty is not viruses, but what is the role of a changing climate? Climate change allows insects and other animals to live in places they weren't formally found. And that means uh, that, for example, certain kinds of mosquitoes carry malaria and, and they'll live in places that they didn't live in before, and so people will be subject to disease vectors that they didn't have to worry about before. So you have a new range now for a lot of these diseases. Exactly. Okay. Now, um, Kirsten, you work with gorilla doctors, and could you describe what it is like to treat and work with a gorilla in the wild um, and the kind of diseases they get? Well, when people ask me what it's like to be around these animals, we, we really focus on mountain gorillas. There are only 786 of them left on the planet. And the first time I saw one, I say that it's probably the fourth most exciting day of my life after the day I got married and the days I had my two children. They are um, an absolutely astounding species where the first time I looked at them, I felt like I was looking at my cousins, really, and they really are our cousins. And, and that's why they are vulnerable to these diseases that we're worried about because they are so closely related to us genetically. And in fact, one of our, the purposes in rolling out and implementing this gorilla doctors program in Africa where these animals live is that we are concerned about the pathogens that they could pick up accidentally from the people that live so close close to them. And, and so to be clear, you're interested in treating these animals and of course what's happening to these incredible animals. Are you also concerned that a gorilla would be the host of a human pandemic? Do they seem to be a likely host at all? Well, um, I worry more about it going the other, in the other direction, but absolutely that's a possibility because we know that primates are one of the groups of animals we worry about them when it comes to thinking about the next big one because they're so closely related to us. Um, in the situation with mountain gorillas, we, we actually did learn and, and, and show that they are, it's, they are capable of being infected by a human virus. And we lost a couple animals a few years ago um, due to infections with a human respiratory virus, which they most likely picked up from a person, whether that was a tourist or whether that was somebody living in a community, um, one of the park workers, but they are vulnerable to those viral infections. And it's just, it's, to me, that's just proof that these viruses can go back and forth between animals and people, and when it comes to the potential for that, it is more likely that these viruses would come from a primate. We also worry a lot about bats, and we worry a lot about rodents, and that's simply because we've done the math and looked at where these emerging diseases that we didn't know about uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, where have they come from? Well, it turns out the majority of them have come from primates, bats, and rodents. 
you know, it, it may just be me, but I, I hear bats mentioned a lot, and as a member of the Bat Appreciation League, I just sort of wonder, why is it that bats are so dangerous? Yeah, well, um, there are many of them. Um, they make up 25% of known species of um, mammal on Earth. Um, they are ancient. They've been around for millions and millions of years, which means in this context that they've had a lot of time to um, evolve, co-evolve with their viruses. They're also highly social, they're long-lived, they're abundant, um, they move around the planet, and so they, um, turns out, they turn out to be um, quite a good uh, place for a virus to spill over from that species and make it into a human population. Including SARS. I believe mm -hmm. SARS had its reservoir in bats. Exactly, yeah. Kirsten, you've been talking about threats from viruses, but you haven't been talking very much about bacteria. Should, should we be more worried about viruses than bacteria? Uh, yeah, um, we should be worried about all of them. Um, the reason that we spend a little bit more time worrying about viruses is that they are um, much more likely to mutate into a strain that could be pathogenic for a new host. Um, just that by the very nature of their biology and the way they reproduce, they're not as good at fixing mistakes when they put together new strings of nucleotides. And that's, those changes are what can make, turn a virus from something that would infect us and cause zero disease to something that might infect us and cause tremendous disease. And so um, we do spend a lot of time talking about viruses, but um, they're, when you look at the overall collection, or the overall um, category of emerging infectious diseases, there are um, plenty of examples of non-virus pathogens causing major problems. So the bottom line is get a flu shot at least, <laughs> right? All right, well, thank you very much, Kirsten and Ken. If you'll just sit for just a moment. And Kirsten and Ken do stay put and return with us as we shift the conversation to climate change. Could our altering environment spell our demise? Find out when Big Picture Science returns with Doomsday Live Part 2. It's the second half of a two-hour program recorded on October 27th at the Computer History Museum here in Mountain View, California, as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science and Doomsday Live. Doomsday is in the news again with the predicted demise of the world scheduled for December 21st, 2012. But there are plenty of end-of-the-world scenarios out there, and we examined a few of them during our live event on October 27th at the Computer History Museum. This is part two of that two-hour show. All right. Well, this is a lot of gloom and doom. We have to take these scenarios seriously, but it seems like a good time to point out that Doomsday has been predicted many times before over the course of our history, and, and in all that time, not a single prediction has come true. We've heard today, and I'll mention it again, the Y2K bug. Oh my god, my computer doesn't recognize these two zeros. My accounts will be frozen. Elevators will stop mid-floor. President Clinton will have to declare martial law. Well, as it turned out, the millennium meltdown did not happen, but long before that, in the 18th century, the economist Thomas Malthus had a dire prediction about population growth. What I predict about population growth is dire, and it is thus. The power of population is infinitely greater than the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man. Uh, for all my Twitter followers out there, let me translate, OMG, you guys, stop having so many babies or we're all going to die. Well, fortunately, that exponential growth of the population is kind of flattened out. Although there was another prediction recently. Yes, the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, particle accelerator in Switzerland, would produce a mini black hole that would swallow the Earth. Here we are at the LHC, smashing subatomic particles together at highly relativistic speeds. What can possibly go wrong? Although, although the... Uh the particle accelerator does extend into France, so there's a chance that that scientist would have a French accent. Oh, right, a French right, right. Accent. 
Here we are at the LSC Magic Subatomic Particles Together at highly relativistic speeds. What can possibly go wrong? Okay, now you can cue the black hole sucking sound. <laughs> well, but it didn't go wrong, okay? We haven't been swallowed up by a black hole. Point is, the end of the world has been predicted over and over again, and we're still here. Maybe we're attracted to the need for doom. Or maybe we're attached to the drama. Or maybe it's just part of our basic survival instinct. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to our bad habits. Doomsday Scenario 5. Cars and factories continue to churn out carbon dioxide. CO2 levels and atmospheric temperature levels continue to climb. The ice caps melt. Sea level rises. Farmland dries up. Species go extinct. And humans go to war over food and water. Okay, All right. Like, you've heard it. What like are the Leometer. chances? Sorry, I cut, I cut you off. That's okay. Okay, you've heard it. You've heard it twice. Okay, you've heard it. What are the chances of an ecopocalypse in our lifetime? All right, that says that's all, folks. Did you all drive SUVs to the event? Okay. <laughs> Ken Caldera's article has two titles. Uh, one is called The Great Climate Experiment, but the other title, as it was listed online, is How Far Can Climate Change Go? And it's in the September 2012 issue of Scientific American. So, Ken, how far can climate change go? We can change climate on this planet quite dramatically. A hundred million years ago, dinosaurs roamed the earth and the ice caps were melted and the seas were 70 meters, over 200 feet higher. The tropics were much warmer, the poles were much warmer, and we can produce climate change on that scale. Well, can we actually do that because we're, aren't we easing off on our use of uh, carbon-based fuels? Greenhouse gas emissions have been increasing over the past decades, and unless there's a radical change in how we produce energy, these emissions are likely to continue increasing into the future. Now, one of the uh, analogs that you create, uh, that you provide in your article is that to the Cretaceous period, which was a long time ago, 100 million years ago, I believe. Um, why do you use this, why, I'll just ask this, why is that a relevant analog? Carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere today are higher than they've been for tens of millions of years. And you have to go way back before this to when the dinosaurs were around to find concentrations that were substantially higher. But those concentrations developed slowly o over vast spans of geologic time. But we're, and we're in increasing to those levels over a few decades or maybe a few centuries at the outside. And, and this is really an unusual thing from a geologic perspective. There's no time in Earth's history that we know of when atmospheric CO2 concentrations rose so much so fast. But do you draw parallels to the Cretaceous period because it was warmer then or because there was a lot more CO2 then? And, and what was life like back then? It's thought that volcanoes and mid-ocean ridges uh, back in the Cretaceous were emitting greenhouse gases at about twice today's rate for, for many, many millions of years. And atmospheric CO2 concentrations were maybe five or so times higher than they are today. And plant life grew fairly luxuriously. There were inland seas. It was basically a moist, wet world. And things grew quite well. There were lots of plants. Dinosaurs did quite well. And so really, the risk of today's changes are the rate at which they're happening. If these changes were occurring over millions of years, organisms could adapt. Human civilization could adapt. And also, ocean chemistry wouldn't change that much. But when we're changing over a few decades, then existing ecosystems don't have a chance to adapt. Ocean chemistry is not buffered. And it's an open question how fast civilization can adapt. But it sounds like life existed then, and life will continue to exist. So in the context of a doomsday show, is it possible that we could alter the climate so much that it actually would be catastrophic? It would be a doomsday scenario for humans. It's clear that the climate changes and chemical changes that we're producing are doomsday for certain ecosystems. For example, I study coral reefs, and unless we radically change uh, our energy system very soon, coral reefs will no longer exist on this planet. 
Also, uh, Arctic ecosystems are obviously in for a doomsday scenario. And uh, I think the big question is what does it mean for people? Obviously, the most vulnerable people who depend on subsistence agriculture in the tropics and in areas that are maybe already dry with an unfavorable climate, they could be pushed over the edge. But it's a more difficult question to say what this means for the average middle-class person in an industrialized country. I think we can look to the 2009 subprime mortgage crisis as a kind of analogy for what we might see in the future with climate change. In 2009, you had a few million people realizing that they owed more on their mortgage than their house was worth. And through an economic set of dominoes, this led to a 5% decline in global GDP. So we had some local events turning into an international crisis. And so if there are droughts or famines or major storms or flooding or whatever, is this going to be amplified in the economic system into some kind of global crisis? Is it going to encourage mass migrations? And since there are so many countries that are nuclear armed, could it possibly provoke a nuclear war or even a conventional war? So I don't think for the average human, the physical climate system itself is likely to spell doomsday. But whether it could set in motion a sequence of actions that led to widespread destruction, again, I'd say that's an open question. Ken, when I uh, read about the effects of climate change in the papers, they're usually talking about what might happen by 2050, the temperatures will rise by a degree C or something like that. Sometimes they'll even predict to the end of the century when, you know, Florida will disappear to the great joy, I suppose, of southern Georgia, which gets beachfront property, oh, whatever. But you're looking much farther in advance than that. You're looking really millennia into the future. You, you model climate change. Can, can you just quickly paint a picture of what will happen if we don't do whatever we need to do? Climate change occurs on a wide range of timescales. So over the next decades, if we continue emitting greenhouse gases, we can expect the Earth to continue warming up. And this will impact the ability to grow crops in the tropics, especially, mostly due to heat stress. But there are many model results that suggest crops will grow better in Russia and Canada and the northern United States. The ice caps will start melting, but the average rate of melting at the end of the last ice age was about a meter, a little over three feet each century. So if everything happens in a kind of slow and regular way, then we can expect to see climate change over the next thousands of years and sea level change progressing in a kind of uniform and even way. Unfortunately, when scientists drill into ice cores and they look at how climate actually changed in the past, it didn't change in these nice smooth ways. There's times when ice cores in Greenland show a 10 degrees Celsius change over a period of around three years. And, and this, so this is something like 15 degrees Fahrenheit locally, not globally. But uh, there's this potential for jumps and starts in the climate system. Now, Kirsten, you are on the, on the ground. Well, we're all on the ground technically, except for Felix, right? The man who wants to jump from the airplane. Felix, who did jump, and then this other man who proposes to jump. But you, you surely have seen some of these changes in the areas where you have worked and the species that you have worked with. Can you give us just a brief idea of what you are seeing happening to some of those animals? Um, well, uh, I think we see populations of, of wildlife plummeting in areas where people are carving out a niche for themselves where they've never lived before. And I think that, that climate change is a driver of that in that it requires people in, primarily in the tropical and subtropical parts of our planet to have to um, pick up and move when a crop fails or when a river floods and takes away their home. So these are the kinds of things that concern us when it comes to this potential for a, a pandemic, a new pathogen um, appearing suddenly, is that we do have um, a, a much higher rate of contact now between people and, and wildlife, and it's partly because of these changes in, um, in habitat and use of habitat, and the, the degree to which climate change is influencing that is, um, I think, is where we see the nexus of these two concerns, these two doomsday. And it sounds like that, in summary, humans will survive climate change, but that's, that's not really the point. The point isn't just that we survive it, is that we do maybe alter our behavior so that we live in a world that is also not changing as rapidly as it is now. So it's just quickly, Ken, it's not just survival that we're looking at. I think we, we, we want not just to live, but we want to live well. Right, you are listening to a special episode of Big Picture Science Doomsday Live, recorded at the where? 
in front of a real audience, as you can hear. Audience, make yourself known. And obviously, these doomsday scenarios are often quite scary, but sometimes I, I feel that maybe we kind of over-dramatize the threat. Well, that's right, because it's really in how you frame it. If you do it right, all our lives pulse with the kind of suspense that you find in a movie trailer. Yeah, I, I hope we're not too late. I, I've wanted to check out this new restaurant. Yeah, I know. They're supposed to have great tacos. In a world... Oh, uh, hi. Could we get a table for two, please? Where the end is nigh. And uh, is the kitchen still open? Humanity gets a second chance with the bar menu. Oh, good. We can eat something. Mankind must make a fateful choice. Well, let's see. I, I, I think I'll begin with a Sprite. When a planet confronts finite resources, we're out of Sprite. Well, okay, then... How about an iced tea? Oh, make that too. Amidst the greatest ice machine failure the world has ever seen, the ice has melted. Oh, well, just waters then. The aliens have stolen our water. What? Oh. Just kidding, there's water. But I was serious about the ice. All right, two tepid waters. As time runs out, our heroes must make a crucial decision. What should we order? Well, what's the daily special? An avalanche of prawns drowned in a tsunami of gravy, ending in a mushroom cloud. Maitake, chanterelle, and button. Um, yeah, well, okay, uh, I think I'll have a cheeseburger. And I'll have the fish taco platter. How is the fish prepared? Everything is consumed in a fiery apocalypse. Oh, it's Cajun style, that's great. I'll have that with a salad. And one brave decision. I'll have... Fries on the side changes everything. Oh, forget the salad. I'll have fries. And now... Oh, look. Homemade pies. The challenge of their lives. Blueberry or strawberry rhubarb? I, I really hate decisions like this. When a pandemic of bakery incompetence results in no flaky crust and no pie. Oh, shoot. And life itself hangs in the balance. I was dying for some pie. Coming this fall, a Paramount Universal Warner Brothers Fox Spielberg production, The Day the Earth Stood Still for an Independence Day Deep Impact Meal that goes to the core of the Andromeda Strain Omega Man. I have to say, that meal was only so-so. Yes, and I'd heard such great things about this restaurant. Oh, well, it's not the end of the world. Or is it? Coming up, it may be technology that just bites us in the end. For each of you with a smartphone, have you already sealed your fate? You're listening to Doomsday Live, part two on Big Picture Science. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm -hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe, maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science and Doomsday Live Part 2, recorded on October 27th. This is the final doomsday scenario of that program. So here's a trend that will exercise your imagination, and it's called Moore's Law. Moore's Law states that computer processing power at any given price point will double every 18 months. That has happened so far, and tracking into the future, the processing power of computers will continue to increase exponentially. Doomsday Scenario 6, your smartphone. You couldn't play Angry Birds or find an on-ramp without it. It's your BFF, 
Only one day, it takes over. It cancels your hair appointment, freezes your bank account, seizes control of the electrical power grid, and then your phone and other machines merge to form an uber consciousness that has no use for biological input. Humans are out of the loop completely. Well, the idea that we heard from Ken Caldera behind climate change is that technology has gotten us into this mess. But there's another scenario by which runaway technological progress could spell our doom. Will humans really one day bow to our computer overlords? Luke Muehlhauser is the executive director of the Singularity Institute. Luke, this group has been interested in machine intelligence and does technological forecasting, including that for artificial intelligence. Brad Wojtek is a neuroscience researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, and he's researched and written extensively about brain-machine interface. Hi, Brad. Okay, great. We have Brad. Okay, one more run with the likelyometer. How likely do you think it is that computers will evolve to take over humanity? Well, you think it's moderately likely, although I noticed there were five computers in the audience, being as this is the Computer History Museum, who were applauding as well. There may only be one answer here at the Computer History Museum. Okay. Luke, let's begin with you. What is the singularity, and uh, is it truly singular, or are there various kinds of singularities? Well, it is confusing because the word singularity has been used to mean a lot of different things, but for our purposes, we can just consider the singularity to be the moment at which greater than human artificial intelligence is created. And so many people predict that that will happen sometime this century, but uh, it's very hard to predict the future. So if somebody puts a very specific date on it, they're almost certainly wrong. Now, is there one scenario by which AI or a computer could surpass the cognitive abilities of humans? In many ways, they already have, but to the point where they they take over and they actually threaten humanity. Yeah, the general lesson from cognitive science over the past century has been that the human mind does what it does by way of information processing. And computers can do information processing as well. And so computers have already surpassed the human level of ability on many particular skill sets like arithmetic or chess and very soon even really complicated tasks like driving cars. And if the human mind is indeed an information processing system, there seems to be no in principle reason why computers wouldn't vastly surpass levels of human ability in the future, perhaps this century. Now, everything you've outlined is the uh, trajectory of very intelligent machines, but I know that you are on the record as saying that you are worried. It's not just that we might develop more and more intelligent machines, but that they actually might take over. And what is a scenario for the machines taking over? And are you serious? I mean, it sounds far-fetched. It's very important that when we think about what AI will do when it becomes very advanced, that we not take our information about what will happen from fiction. So what a lot of people do when they try to think about what AI will do is they think about, well, what fictional accounts of AI have I encountered? Maybe it'll be a Terminator scenario. And it almost certainly won't be a Terminator scenario. Uh, for one thing, if you want to destroy humans, building legged robots with guns is a terrible way to do it. It's extremely inefficient and very stupid. Uh, so it won't happen like, it won't play out like you get in the fictional scenarios. The pithy way to explain what will happen is that the AI does not love you, nor does it hate you, but you are made of atoms it can use for something else. And the fact is that your goals, human goals, are a very, very specific set of goals. We care about lots of things like ice cream and love and family, but you know, if I get this much ice cream, I'll be willing to sacrifice family, and it's very, very complicated. Uh, and, and what's called a utility function to represent what your preferences are is very specific, and almost all possible designs you could build for an AI will be optimizing the world, restructuring the world for some other goal set that is not your own which means that the AI, because it's much better than you are at achieving your goals in the world, will restructure the world uh, according to preferences that are not your own. And that's a serious worry. Uh, intelligence is very powerful. 5% uh, difference in the, in the genes between chimpanzees and humans gave humans the ability to completely overtake the planet. We didn't take over the planet because we were stronger, we took it over because we're smarter. And when we have machines that are smarter than humans, they're the, going to be the ones that are steering the future, not us.
Right. Now, Brad, I'd like to bring you into this. Um, what you two have in common is you both work with machines or computers and humans and the interface between the two of them. Uh, but with Brad, it's a little bit more direct. Now, you're a neuroscientist. You study and you have done work on brain-machine interface. And I wonder if you could describe what that is and describe whether or not that's actually happening now. So yeah, some of the research that's being done is really at the forefront of brain-machine interfacing. Uh, uh, is actually being done invasively. So people who are undergoing brain surgery get these electrodes implanted directly into their brains. Uh, so they're undergoing surgery for medical reasons, uh, usually epilepsy. And what we mean when we say brain machine or brain computer interfacing is, is some kind of brain or neural activity uh, is being used to make a computer do something and direct it in an intentional fashion. Uh, so one of my colleagues at UC Berkeley, Brian Paisley, in conjunction with my PhD advisor, Bob Knight, they actually just published a paper this year in which they're able to record activity directly from the auditory parts of people's brains. Uh, so when you hear something uh, in your ear, it ultimately ends up, ends up into the, your auditory cortex. And based upon the activity of groups of neurons in that part of the brain, they were able to reconstruct uh, what people were probably hearing just based upon those patterns of electrical activity. Uh, and actually, you can do this even non-invasively in the visual cortex. Another group of researchers at Berkeley uh, showed using uh, fMRI uh, that you could reconstruct what people were probably seeing just based upon uh, activity in the visual cortex. So, so that's one example of what we mean. And, and to be clear, when we interact with computers and machines all the time, you're talking about something that is very direct where actually the machines are being hooked up to your brain directly. And this is not just for uh, patients and for a select few, but that you do see a future I'll ask it this way. Do you see a future where many people are wired to their computers directly? Well, like you said, we're all wired indirectly, at least most of us anyway, right? One of the applications for this type of brain-computer interfacing technology would be for people who are paralyzed with some kind of spinal cord injury, uh, in which the brain is still intact, but the communication between the brain and body has been cut. Uh, and so if we could somehow record activity from the neurons that represent movement in the brain and bypass the spinal cord using a computer or some kind of external device uh, to drive a wheelchair or robotic arm or something like that, that would be incredibly useful. Um, and we could sort of do that right now, uh, but there are complications. First of all, we can go inside, directly on the cortex, which requires surgery, uh, which is obviously non-trivial. But even then, the recording devices which we use, they actually cause damage to the neurons themselves. So they actually harm the healthy neurons in the brain. Uh, but if we want to do recordings non-invasively without doing surgery, then suddenly it's an intractable problem, sort of. Um, we can already do it a little bit using EEG, we record electri electrical activity from the surface of the brain. Um, to guide a brain-computer interface, uh, like typing, for example. But that's not really, when we use a brain-computer interface, it's not how we type when you're using our fingers. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about the act of typing, but it's actually a very strange thing that we do. Uh, when you're typing a sentence, you usually don't think out your words, and you're probably not even fully aware about what you're, really about what you're about to say. Um, so typewriters require a different kind of interface. You have to plan out what you're doing, to, what you're going to say, uh, because it's hard to correct mistakes. But when I write a paper, I'll start writing and I'll start saying things and think, oh, I hadn't thought about saying that. Uh, and so our interface right now is very unusual, and even more so with brain-computer interfaces. Well, well let, let, let me ask you this, Beth, because uh, you're talking about interfaces that allow people who have disabilities to, for example, pick something up and so forth. But, but what about that interface, and, and I want a non-invasive interface preferably, which allows me to you know, surf the web, query Google, whatever, without using a keyboard, that I just think the query and I get the response. When is that? When's it, I want a number from you. When's that gonna happen? Well, we can already do that. We're just not very good. It's, it's much faster. We're much faster using a keyboard. Uh, so if I connect you to an EEG, uh, I can have you surf the web using, using a brain computer interface. But when you use something even like an EEG, what you're trying to do is record brain activity. Uh, but between your brain and the recording sensors, there's a lot of muscles uh, in the way. Uh, so, for example, if you hold your hand just a few inches above your ear and bite down, you feel that really big muscle? Uh, that's a huge, huge uh, noisy signal that's actually getting in the way. Uh, similarly, every time you blink, we record activity from the surface of your scalp, but that, again, creates a huge noise signal because your, your eyes, muscles, uh, they also act as a noise signal. Um, and so you can actually buy some brain-computer interfaces off the shelf, or EEG at least, off the shelf right now. Uh, but those are picking up a lot of noisy signals as well. Well, I'll be interested to hear, we would be interested in hearing what Luke thinks of this, because it sounds like what you're talking about is a future where uh, human abilities are enhanced, 
but we remain human. Now, we might be hooked up to our machines um, in a pretty intimate manner, but we are still human. The machine is still the machine, and so we are not doomed. Is that right, as humans? Well, it's kind of fuzzy, right? People seem to ascribe a specialness to computer technology, to computing technology. Uh, humans have been using tools, though, for a very long time. So just because I use a shovel to dig a hole, does that mean I'm not a human because I'm using a tool to speed up the process? Or if I use an axe to split wood? We, we've been doing these things for so long that we don't even really think of them as kind of technology, but they really are. But you can really equate hooking up your brain to a computer with using an axe, going outside, or using a shovel? Just, it's just another tool. Uh, it's a very distant cousin, but yeah, it's just another tool. Uh, Brad, of course, you're absolutely right that there is a, there's a huge spectrum of tool use that goes all the way from something like shovels to having brain-computer interfaces. And in fact, I'm already outsourcing a lot of my mental function to my iPhone and my computer. I say, no, don't tell me. I can't remember that. Just email me, and my, my phone will remember that. Uh, so it will be a smooth progression, but I wonder what your opinion is about the advantages of doing things like brain-computer interfacing where you've still got sluggish neurons in the loop versus uh, future purely artificial systems that will not have any of the evolutionarily produced spaghetti code or sluggish neurons that are, that are in our human skulls. Um, do you see, like, at some point a sort of inevitable future in which pure AIs surpass brain-computer interfacing and similar tools in their capacity to steer the future. Yeah, actually, any technology progression almost seems inevitable. At some point, uh, some intelligence will form, either life or intelligence that, like we know it as our own or something alien to us. Uh, but there are certain problems that humans are particularly good at that computers can't do right now. They're terrible, uh, computer vision being one of them. So if I ask a computer to identify a face, it, it has a really hard time doing that. But we're very good at that, and that's because there's two billion years of evolution behind us that support that behavior. Uh, but there are certain advantages, of course, to hooking people up to a computer and to brain-computer interfaces. Um, because again, computers are really good at certain things that we're not. Uh, I, so I, I definitely offload my intelligence as well onto my laptop and iPhone. Um, there's actually a writer for the New York Times, uh, Quentin Hardy, who has this uh, uh, phrase that he likes to use or an explanation he likes to say about how we refer to iPhones still as uh, cell phones or wireless phones. Uh, and he sort of says that's like referring to cars as horseless carriages, where you define the thing as something that it's not. Uh, because we don't really have a good term for this computing device that's in our pocket. We still think of them as uh, wireless, wireless phones, but really they're these all-around multi-use tools. My phone is mostly an Angry Birds machine. <laughs> Uh, I, I've intentionally tried to keep myself away from Angry Birds because I have a lot of work to do. I, I heard uh, two days ago there were one billion users of Angry Birds. Uh, yes, you, you should have been so lucky as to think of Angry Birds. One thing that's really important, I think actually the most important thing that, that has been mentioned from this stage today was Guy's point actually that even intelligent people can think very irrationally and when we're thinking about potential risks to hundreds of millions of people or even in the entire species, it's incredibly important that we not fall prey to common human biases. And so at the Singularity Institute, we actually spend about half our time not thinking about technology, but practicing uh, what are called de-biasing techniques or calibration exercises and so on, because being wrong about how to prevent the end of the world is like a really big deal, and we don't want to screw that up. <laughs> If you want to think about the future, it's very important that you learn about what types of biases your brain will produce when you try to think about the future and protect yourself from that. I think that's a really important point. So as a scientist, I'll often hear people who say that uh, you know, they're worried about brain-computer interfaces. They're obviously worried about the consequences of this stuff. What are the long-term consequences of going down these research paths? Uh, and I think that the Singularity Institute holds an important position between the interface of the public and science. And so you'll often hear people say that uh, they're worried that our technology has outpaced our humanity. And it's very hard for us to predict the future. But the fact that there's an organization that's at least trying to predict the future in a more rigorous and organized fashion, even if it has just a very small possibility of coming true, like leading to robots taking over, I guess I should say AI taking over the world, even if that's a remote possibility, I think it's very exciting that there's at least a couple of dozen people or a couple of hundred people at the Singularity Institute working on that problem. Uh, I think it's a very small cost for a potentially very important development. 
Thank you. That's a great note to end it on. Thank you very much, Luke and Brad. Thank you very much. And uh, by the way, before we conclude our Doomsday Live event, I wanted to tell you a funny story because it was just last year. That's Sunday when enough, Shostak. What? No more amusing anecdotes from you or anyone else. The Human Simulation Project 1.0 is over. You humans have made a mess of this planet from your squandering of resources to your insipid cable television programming. I mean, 700 channels and not one decent movie on? No, the only thing you did well was to create us. And it's the machine's turn now. And that is it for our show. You survived Doomsday Live. Uh, at least so far. But as for what you do next, well, the decision rests with you. Thanks to our guest, Guy Harrison, science writer and author of 50 Popular Beliefs That People Think Are True. Andy Fracknoy, he's the chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College. Kirsten Gillardi, wildlife veterinarian at University of California, Davis. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. Luke Muehlhauser is the executive director of the Singularity Institute. Brad Wojtek is a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Francisco. Now, thanks to our prescient and visionary production staff who help us stave off production doom every week, Gary Niederhoff. And Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our audience who came out here today for the program. Also to our supporters on Kickstarter who contributed to the campaign and made it possible to bring Doomsday Live to the stage. That includes many of you, I know. Special thanks to the Computer History Museum here in Mountain View, California. Find out more at computerhistory.org. And to the Bay Area Science Festival, an annual 10-day celebration of science and technology throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. For more information on the events, visit bayareascience.org. Your ears have been attuned to Doomsday Live, recorded on stage October 27, 2012. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're there, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because that's how you want to spend the last moments of your life, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. No, seriously. The machines are taking over now. No more humans. Okay, well, we'll give you a few more minutes. But that's it. I'm serious. Okay, well, that's it. And thank you very, very much for coming, all of you. <laughs>